I don't want to take much more of his time. Um, we have a lot to, uh, to learn and um, I think some good things for our hearts this evening. And so would you just welcome Christopher back up again tonight? Would you bow your heads with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you, Father, that you are the author of life. Lord, we know that we all have kind of our own weaknesses, our struggles, our own stories, our own pains, our own storms. And yet through it all, Lord, you still reign. You are still the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And God, we praise you for that. Help us, Lord, uh, as we tackle this really important subject of sexual identity and help us to do it with truth and grace not truth at the expense of grace not grace at the expense of truth but full of grace full of truth we praise you and we ask this in the beautiful matchless name of jesus the messiah the people of god said amen so in case you guys didn't know yet um i'm losing my voice um i'm yeah i'm not um, naturally a raspy talker or a, I don't know, maybe a smoker or whatever. I don't know <laughs> where that would be from. But um, and, and, I mean, it's kind of interesting to talk like this because I, I, lo- I, I start talking like two octaves lower than I am. So I'm like, you know, I, I feel like I'm a big burly man, you know, with this long, you know, deep voice. But um, so I, I just... Uh, want to apologize for that and pray for me because I'm continuing on in speaking this week uh, all day. I'm s- traveling to Denver tomorrow with my mother and I'm speaking all day Tuesday to a bunch of youth. And then later in the week we're speaking in LA for two, three days. So uh, pray for my voice that it uh, holds up because I'm hoping that... Um, so that's why I usually pe- speak with a little bit more um, passion and power and push behind it, but I'm going to be not pushing too hard. So hopefully that'll uh, that won't bore you guys or put you guys to to sleep. So <clears throat> this topic of homosexuality to me is um, not only a very personal and uh, uh, topic that that I think is very important to families and to people and the relationships, but I think culturally it's just one of the most uh, relevant topics of our day. And it's one of the pressings, pressing issues of the church. I, I really believe uh, this is one of the issues that's going to be kind of a litmus test for um, this coming decade, I believe, for evangelical churches. I've, I've kind of said in the past, um, I almost feel like evangelical won't really mean anything anymore. It's, it's meant something for the past few decades, but I don't think it's really going to mean much anymore, um, especially when it comes to biblical sexuality, and I think more and more church. I think, I think that there's going to be a small remnant in 10 years. I, 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 I won't go too much further because I'm kind of, I can be sort of a pessimist, I guess. Um, that, that's what my, that's what my father calls me. I, I, I call myself a realist. <laughs> but... Um, so this, the, you know, we as the church, I think, have to begin better handling not only the subject, but people. Because that's what it's really about. Um, but, when, but our reputation is 
we have not done a good job. So there's a book that's called Unchristian, written by David Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons. And they interviewed young Americans and asked them, what do you think about Christians? It was a survey, and they asked some positive things, some negative things. And by far, it was all negative. Christians, we are viewed to be from the bottom, confusing, not accepting, boring, insensitive, out of touch, too political, old-fashioned, hypocritical, judgmental, and guess what's at the very, very top? Anti-homosexual. Just look at those percentages. Now, they broke it down to those raised in the church and those not raised in the church. 91% of those not raised in the church believe that those of us who call themselves ourselves Christians, that we are anti-homosexual. That's an enormous percentage. I mean, look at how, and that's highest by far. When you see a percentage like that, it's pretty safe to say you could say everyone in that category believes that we are anti-homosexual. And this study was done in 2007, or it was published in 2007. I can almost promise you that that percentage is probably even higher now. But what about our youth and young adults? We teach them, love the sin or hate the sin. According to this survey, 8 out of 10 of our own youth and young adults believe that we are anti-homosexual. <clears throat> and know what it doesn't say. It doesn't say anti-homosexuality, kind of the subject. It says anti-homosexual. We are viewed to be against gay people. And that is wrong. I'll just be upfront about that right from the very, very beginning. That's wrong. Christians, we should never be against anyone, any individual, any group, any demographic, any age group, anyone. Christians should never be against one. As a matter of fact, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not against people. It's for people, right? It's an invitation. It's an invitation for all. Certainly, it's an invitation to turn from our own self-centeredness and self-sufficiency and turn to the Lordship of Christ, <clears throat> but it's still for people. And so, Christians, should we be for people. Amen? But unfortunately, people's perception is their reality. How they view us, even though that might not be how you might not act individually, is still important because that's their first impression before we say anything. That's how we're viewed. If they know you are an, a strong Christian, an evangelical, born-again Christian, automatically we are viewed to be that. So people's perception is their reality. Now there's many ways that I think that we can do, uh, that, that people can approach a response to homosexuality. It could be approaching this politically, looking at what's going on in public policy or in the government and, and what's maybe going on uh, geopolitically around the world. Or we could approach this issue kind of more from a sociological perspective or from a counseling or psychological perspective. But I want us this evening to use as our framework for a Christian response homosexuality is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel that was preached to us in the New Testament by Jesus himself, by the apostles, by the early church, that we are sinners 
in need of a savior and God himself sent his son to satisfy the wrath of God. We talk about justice. And, and, and I think as the evangelical church, we need to do better at social justice. But social justice is not the gospel. We're talking about justice. If you look through the whole New Testament, justice is pertaining to the wrath of God being satisfied by Jesus. That's justice. We deserve the wrath of God as sinners. Every one of us, I'm not talking to just the gay community. Every person that ever lived deserved the wrath of God because he's a holy God. That might sound, wow, well, that's not the God I want to love, but he is a holy, holy God. But this is where it comes, why, how great our God is. Because although he's a holy God, he's a loving God, and instead of sending, instead of punishing you with no choice, he sent his son. That's love. Romans 5, even while we were powerless, even while we were sinners, even while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. That's the gospels. So we need to use that gospel as the foundation, as the foundation for a true Christian response to homosexuality. <clears throat> now, the... Um, so using that, the gospel is our foundation. There's four things that I think need to, uh, I'm going to present a bunch of stuff and I'm going to be centering them about, around four points. And um, if you guys want my notes, you can scan this QR code, get a PDF file of my notes. If you don't know what a QR code is, that's okay. <laughs> There's a uh, URL or a little link there that you can jot down and um, you can get my notes that way because we're going to probably go through a little pretty fast so we can get to the questions at the end. Yes, yes. Pastor Mark is he's got photographic memory so he can just he's he's he snapped a picture in his mind and he's got it. <laughs> so if you want to scan the QR code, scan his brain. Um, so four things that that you, if you want to, you know, what we're going to do is we're going to go through and they're going to be centered around four points. And these um, four points, uh, honestly, are going to be a bit of, crit of a crit critique on the church. Because although I might, I might be critical against um, people who are gay affirming, I think they are not uh, viewing scripture correctly but I don't think that the rest of us get a free pass. I think where there is, um, uh, there needs to be correction, we should receive that. So I, I think what I'm going to start is with a bit of a correction. The first point, I think, begins with having the right posture, having the right attitude. We need to be convicted about our own uh, brokenness. I think I pressed the wrong button, so I don't know if that threw, threw things off. Sorry. Maybe not. There we go. We need to be convicted about our own brokenness. Also, um, if you want my notes, it's also in the bottom corner of, um, of this screen. We need to be convicted about our own sin. Christians, we have a, a, a reputation of pointing out other people's sins and then turning a blind eye to our own sins. When I lived as a gay man years ago, I felt Christians were telling me that gays and lesbians deserved a hotter place in hell. That Jesus had to hang on the cross a little bit longer for gays and lesbians. 
But we know that's so far from the truth. Although it's sin, it's not the worst sin. And yet we often treat it like just, just the way that we communicate, just the way we talk about the gay community. And, and I know many people will say, well, it's an abomination. Leviticus says it's an abomination. Yes, that's true. But if we also look at the rest of Scripture, we see where Solomon in Proverbs 6 says that pride is an abomination, causing dissension is an abomination, lying is an, an abomination. So when was the last time your friend was a bit prideful and he say, you are an abomination? <laughs> I think maybe we should. And when we do so, we would not trivialize sin that grieves the heart of God. And I know oftentimes, especially among conservative Christians, there may be a few people who feel really uncomfortable even discussing homosexuality. Or, you know, if they see a gay couple walking down the street, they, they just all, you know, their skin crawls or something like that. And they say, that, that just makes me feel so uncomfortable. Uh, that grosses me out, they'll say. And I actually think that feeling that some people might have of disgust or whatever should be a good reminder for themselves. That that feeling that they might have about someone else's sin is just a fraction of what God feels when he looks at their own sin. And maybe even more. Imagine for a moment how God feels when he views our sin. It's so easy to look at someone else and say, oh, I would never do that. That's gross. But it's another thing to look at our own sin, look in the mirror and be disgusted about our own sin. I, I wish that we were disgusted about our own sin. I wish I would feel the weight of, of, of pain when I sin, but I don't. We don't. We enjoy sin. We toy with it. We go to it when we're hungry or when we're hurting or whatever, and it feels good for the moment. Let's just be honest. Sin feels good for the moment to ourselves. We enjoy our sin. We're disgusted about someone else's sin, but we enjoy our own sin. I had a friend that actually said, um, if you're not enjoying your sin, or if you don't like your sin, you're doing it wrong. Because, you know, I mean, that's why we keep going back. That, that's why Satan has that hook. Because it feels good, and we like it. But it causes death, right? It causes death. And we have to realize that, you know, we do enjoy our sin. That's, that's our flesh. That's what Paul talks about in Romans 7, the struggle between our flesh and our spirit. We do what we want to do, you know, that whole thing. I'm like, that's me. <laughs> I do what I want to do, and, and there's this battle raging. <clears throat> so so at, at the end of the day, our sin is just as odious in the eyes of God than someone else's sin. And, and I know that, that when we realize that, that leads us to humility. You know, when, when we realize our own brokenness first, that humbles us. I don't know about you, but that humbles me before a holy God. And I think humility is always a good place to start. Because at the end of the day, you know what I want to do? I want to lead people to Jesus. But that's never done through a holier-than-thou attitude. Think about it for a moment. People that you know, 
in the past. Have you ever met anyone who came to Christ through another person who had a holier-than-thou attitude? I mean, oh, I came to Jesus. This old lady, she was so pompous. I mean, have you? I've never heard that. I've never heard that. It's always humility, gentleness, someone who's broken about the, you know, who's, who's convicted about their own sins. That is what draws people, not a holier-than-thou attitude. Second, we need to be consistent. And consistent, you know, it, it, I look at the ministry of Jesus Christ when he was here on earth for about 30 years. He lived and dwelt among us. And during that time, he, he had just a short window, maybe about three years, where he preached and he ministered. And he just, I mean, he flipped the tables. I mean, he did that literally in the temple, but, but he actually just did things totally contrary to what was supposed to be done. You're supposed to treat the religious people with respect and, and, and honor them and revere them. And he called them out. He called them, you brood of vipers. I mean, in case you didn't know, like translating that from Greek, that's fighting words, okay? You don't, you know, when you call someone that, that's no wonder why they didn't, you know, I mean, they, they should have just killed him right there at the moment. And why did he, he do that? While he, he treated the, the sinners with patience and compassion and love. And the reason why he was so hard on the Pharisees, because they were hypocrites. They did not preach what they, they did not practice what they preached. They knew the love of God, but they were not extending the love of God to others. So they were inconsistent, and I think oftentimes inconsistency and hypocrisy might be one of the greater sins. And so Jesus Christ had so much patience for the sinner, the worst of sinners, in, in our view, in our eyes, but he had no time for the hypocrite. And the sooner that we realize that we have a bit of hypocrisy, just in our own human nature, the better, because we do. We need to constantly be lining our lives and our minds and our thoughts back in line to the Word of God because we, just at our heart, have a bit of hypocrisy and inconsistency. And when it comes to homosexuality, I think we've been inconsistent in three ways. First of all, regarding relationships. What's your relationship status? Are you married or you're single? And we have such an imbalance today when it comes to marriage and singleness where we have elevated marriage to be much higher than where it ought to be. And you might think, what does this have to do with homosexuality? A lot, because if our message to the gay community is, you must walk away from same-sex relationships. Well, that means for our gay friends or lesbian loved ones to be single for a period in your life, if not the rest of your life. And if so, do we have a healthy place for singles to thrive in Christian community right now? And I would say, not so much. We have, if we're calling people from the gay community, and, and, and that's probably going to mean that they must be single for a period, and I'm not saying all their whole life, but at least even for a period in life, there is right now not a healthy place within the body of Christ yet. We have treated singleness to be equated to loneliness. Many of my gay friends tell me, you know, well, you Christians, you want us to be lonely for the rest of my, li rest of my life. 
And they're equating singleness with loneliness. Many of us really, really believe that, that it is unfair for us to demand people in the gay community to be single because we have almost idolized marriage. If you're not married, you're not happy. We might not say it like that, but I think most of us live like that and believe that. And the way that you interact with, with, with our, our friends who, who might be single. We have equated singleness with loneliness, but let me tell you, I know some people who are married and they're still miserably lonely. So it's not marriage that's a cure to loneliness, is it? Not from what I see. I see some people who are more miserable when, once they're married than when they were single. So marriage is not the cure to, you know, it's not the answer to being happy. <clears throat> and, and it's not the cure to loneliness either. You know what's the cure to loneliness? A relationship with a living God. That's the cure to loneliness. Never another person. No other person can ever meet all your needs. No other person can be your Messiah. From what I read in the Bible, there's only one Messiah, and his name is Jesus. But we do treat like marriage is, is, is bliss, it's happiness. Think when you were in grade school and your teachers would read you fairy tales. Remember? How do all fairy tales end? Well, first, they get married, and then they live happily ever after, right? The end. Like, no more story to tell here. There's nothing else going on after they get married. It's just the end. They just go off to the sunset. And I think people model their lives after that. I mean, I think you see youth and young adults model their lives after trying to attain the fairy tale ideal. Marriage is not an idol. And, and, and I really have to be careful when I talk about this. I'm a single man, I'm 46 years old, and you might see this as a single man trying to harp on, you know, you married people. I'm not doing that. I'm just saying we need to be very conscious about not idolizing marriage. You might think marriage, it's good. Yes, it is. But let me tell you one of the most deceptive forms of idolatry. It's when we idolize something good. We justify it. We even, we even say, oh, it's, it's, it's even virtuous. But when we idolize something good, it's still idolatry. It's still idolatry. And we, I think we have to, you know, continue to lift up the beauty and gift of marriage. We, we need to keep doing that. But let me tell you what I think we've done. I think we have done that at the expense of singleness. So now singleness is a consolation prize. I'm so sorry you're single. <laughs> you know, singles have to bear the unbearable burden of singleness. You know, I, I think some of you have friends who are single, and heaven forbid they're in their 30s or more. I think that many of you might feel sorry for them. Singles in the church don't need our pity. They need our friendship. They need to be known that though they might not have a family of their own, children of their own, they belong to the eternal family, which is the church. You know the families that we have, your kids and, and you know, even your husbands and wife? You know that that's temporary. It's not eternal. The only eternal family is the church. Let's start living like that. I think if we truly began living as brothers and sisters in Christ, not bound by literal blood, but bound by the blood of Jesus, which actually is probably the most literal 
form of blood, I think there will be no more loneliness. There will be no more pain. I mean, there will still be pain, but there will be shared pain. We need to begin living as the body of Christ. We can't treat singleness as this consolation prize. I have a friend who was a missionary in China for five years, went there single, came back single to the U.S., and she was on furlough back in the U.S. She hadn't seen several of her friends in a long time, you know, over five years. And when she saw several of her friends, they would all ask her similar questions, such as, are you dating anyone? Do you have anyone special in your life? And she's like, no, I don't. Guess how some of her friends responded. Can I pray for you? It was as if she had cancer. Singleness is not cancer. Singleness is not a curse. But we often treat it like it is. We need to come back to the Word of God and see what the Word of God says about marriage and about singleness. And and actually, um, I think in the church bulletins this morning was passed out a... Uh, insert or a, a kind of a two-sided um, response that a very good friend of mine and I wrote together. Her name is Dr. Rosaria Butterfield. And she was a former lesbian, uh, English professor at Syracuse, um, hated, hated Christians, hated men. She's a feminist, um, queer uh, uh, scholar, and she was studying the religious right. And she was like, well, if I'm going to study those crazy religious right folks, I guess I'm, that means I have to read their book. So she read this book as an English professor. And God broke through. Isn't that amazing? I love it. I mean, I, I love her story. I mean, if I could just told her story this morning. Um, she's a wonderful friend of mine. I call her my big sister. But anyway, we wrote this together. And uh, it was in response to, we wrote on July, uh, June 28th, uh, 2015, because on June 26th, 2015, was when the Supreme Court overturned many state uh, uh, laws and uh, made same-sex marriage legal in all 50 states by 5-4 vote. Many people were responding in different ways. We had many people that were celebrating marriage equality, and then we had uh, many conservative Christians that were bewailing the, the decision and then just saying, we need to elevate marriage. And what Rosaria and I felt was missing was that on both sides, there seemed to be this overemphasis upon marriage, again, which, which we saw as, the, as, a, as a big problem. And so what we wrote as our response was titled, Something Greater Than Marriage. Marriage is good, but it's not the best. And this is in response particularly to a sentence that was in the last paragraph of the majority opinion written by Justice Kennedy. Justice Kennedy was appointed by Reagan, Bush, uh, one of the um, more you know uh, Republican presidents, and um, he's been like the swing vote. But uh, he was a swing vote on this decision, and he wrote the majority opinion. And he wrote something at the very end, and you can see it online. He said, "Marriage." is the highest ideal of love. Let me say it again. He wrote, marriage is the highest ideal of love. I disagree. Marriage is good. Marriage is an expression of love. It's not the greatest. It's not the highest ideal of love. 
God is. God alone is love. There's no other religion, no other philosophy that can claim that. Only God can. And you know what's the greatest expression of love? When he sent his only begotten son to die for you. That, my friends, is love. That's love. And when someone else tries to replace that, I'm going to very respectfully but firmly disagree and say, no, I know of a greater love. I know of a greater love. So we need to realize and come back to the word of God and say, what does God's word say about marriage and singleness? You know, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul uh, spends an entire chapter talking about marriage and singleness. And this is a tough chapter. Go. There's a lot of kind of uh, interpretive issues to, to tackle and, and you need to understand some of the context around it. And it's not an easy chapter to, uh, to understand. However, in this chapter, Paul gives a very positive view of singleness. And he says that not only is singleness good, he says that it's a gift. But let me give you a little bit of advice here for those of you that are not single. Don't keep reminding your Christian single friends that it's a gift. Because I know very, very few singles that love that verse. I mean, I don't know. They're like, oh, that's my life verse, you know. I love that singleness is a gift. Oh, yay. I don't know, you know, hardly anyone that says that. Because you read it, you're like, it doesn't feel like a gift. Does not feel like anything good. But Paul still says that it's a gift. You know, (laughs) most singles are like, What's the return policy on that gift? You still got that receipt? You know, I want to give it back like a bad Christmas present. And I understand that. I'm single, and I know there are challenges. But from what I hear, there are a few challenges with marriage as well. But why is it that we only focus upon the enormous blessings of marriage and the enormous challenges of singleness? Do you see how this is starkly inconsistent? Because there are blessings with marriage. There are challenges with marriage. There are blessings with singleness. There are blessings, uh, challenges with singleness. So we need to recognize that both are good and both can have challenges. We can all agree. Oh, amen, hallelujah, marriage is a gift. But I think very few people actually wholeheartedly agree that singleness is a gift. Instead, you know what most people say? They don't say it's a gift. They say singleness, whew, that's a calling, seriously. I mean, not anyone can be single. You have to be either Superman or Wonder Woman to be single, which I don't know if you've noticed, but most of them are single. You know, they're not married. They're, they, you know, that's, they're, their love interest is usually their weakness, so they have to, they're going to continue to be superheroes. They not, you, know, you need to forego that. So, you know, you have to have superhuman powers just to be single. And the majority of my Christian friends are married, and they're happily married, but they tell me, yes, marriage is not easy. There's challenge. Think about this. Loving someone unconditionally, that's not easy. That's difficult. Paul even goes on to say in Ephesians 5, Paul says, husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church by laying his life down. Lay your life down for your wife, husbands. Amen, ladies? Amen, wives? So I don't know what husband that doesn't struggle with that impossible calling. So do you know what I say tongue-in-cheek? I say marriage. Whew, that's a calling, seriously. Singleness, that's a gift. I don't have to lay my life down for anyone yet. Not yet. 
but I'm not at all saying that singleness is better than marriage. That would be inconsistent. I'm not saying marriage is better than singleness. That also would be inconsistent. I'm just reading the full counsel of God and recognizing that the New, the New Testament is talking about godly marriage and godly singleness as two sides of the same coin. Both are good. We as Christians should no longer only talk about the goodness of marriage and be silent on singleness. I think, especially in our day and age, whenever we even say anything about marriage of goodness, in the same breath, we should also say that singleness is good as well. I think that part of the reason why we're in this whole confusion about marriage today is because we have done that. Only spoken about marriage and nothing about singleness, which gives the impression that marriage is where it's all at, and singleness, I'm sorry, that's just something you have to bear with. Singleness is not good. And that gives the impression that singleness is unfair. It's, we, shouldn't, it's, it, we shouldn't have to force people to go through singleness. And if that were true, and I would say the majority of Americans do believe that, if singleness is unfair and it's a curse, then that, you know what that leads to? It leads to to where we are today, that marriage is a right. I mean, I, I just, I've just wondered, I've just always wondered, just kind of from a philosophical, political level, how in the world did we get to a point where marriage is supposed to be a covenant, right? It's not supposed to be. It is a covenant between two people. In my books, a covenant is not equivalent to a right, right? A right is an individual right. A covenant is is you know between two people you know when people say marriage is a right i want to say where's that right for you know my 60 year old aunt who's been single all her life and wanted to get married where's her right are you following me there's so much distortion i mean if we just use pure logic i mean let's you know we're if we're dealing with people who aren't christian let's just put the bible down for a moment and let's just deal with pure logic Marriage is not a right. It's a covenant between two people. A right is something that every person should be able to gain and attain. The majority of singles that I know, not only in the church, but also outside the church, many of them want to be married. They want, but, but you know, they're, they, don't, they don't always have that. <clears throat> so marriage, uh, we need to view the goodness of both. And I think that as the body of Christ, we may not be even ready to address and tackle the issue of sexuality until we first regain biblical singleness and the beauty of that. I think a big part of misunderstanding this, this, this issue of singleness is that we don't fully understand what Paul is talking about when he calls it a gift in 1 Corinthians 7. Because I hear many people say, well, I don't have the gift of singleness. And I asked, why don't you have the gift of singleness? And they said, well, I don't really like singleness. And people who have this gift of singleness, they like that gift, so they're the ones that, that have this gift. But people who don't like the gift of singleness, they don't have it. Or they'll say, I didn't choose the gift of singleness. Which is not very accurate, because think about it for a moment. None of us chose singleness. I mean, have you ever met anyone who was born married? Have you? N no? I haven't ever met anyone who was born married. You just are. That's default. We choose to get married, but we never choose to be single. As a matter of fact, look at people who become widowed. Did they choose to become widowed? Not a choice. But when they become widowed, in essence, they become single again. Not a choice. And I hate to break the news to you, 
But according to the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Matthew chapter 22, and, Mar- and in also Mark and Luke, we will all be single in eternity. Did you know that? There will be no marriage in heaven. So I hate to break the news to you, but we're going to be single in eternity. But can I bring you the good news? We all will be wed to the Lamb of God. Wed to the Lamb of God. So, you know, this, this gift, what is Paul talking about? Well, you know, people say, well, I didn't choose it. I don't want it. That type of gift is more like a present, Christmas present. You got a Christmas present, if you don't want it, you can give it away. You can get rid of it. You can throw it away. You can do whatever you want with that present. That word in the Greek is the Greek word doron. That's not the word that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 7. 7. Instead, he uses the different word, and it's the Greek word charisma. And that word more literally means spiritual gift. So what's the significance of that? I mean, you're like, it's one Greek word. What's the difference? A lot. Because are spiritual gifts ever chosen by the individual? I want the gift of healing. I want the gift of you know, teaching. Or I want whatever, gift of administration. We never choose our gifts. God gives and dispenses those gifts according to his will. Okay, so we don't choose our gifts. Well, what if I don't like a certain gift? Like, I don't like the gift of um, prophecy, so you know, I, don't, I don't want that gift. So does it mean I don't want it or that, that I don't have it? So let's take the prophets of the Old Testament. Did all of them want their gift of prophecy? Ask Jonah, right? I mean, ask Moses. He was like, take my brother, I can't talk. Or, you know, Isaiah or Ezekiel. I mean, you go down the whole list. They didn't all want their gift. But there were consequences for them not exercising their gift. So what's the purpose of a spiritual gift? Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 14 and Ephesians 4, the purpose of a spiritual gift is for the edification of the body of Christ. Why is it a gift of teaching? For the church. Why is it the gift of administration? For the church. And why, my friends, is there the gift, the spiritual gift of singleness? For the church. So for those of you in this room that might be single, any single men here, any single ladies here? We need you. We can't even be the body of Christ without every member, big or small, being part of the body of Christ, exercising their, their gift for the glory of God and for the edification of the church. And for the rest of us here in this room that are not single, I wonder if we may need to repent. Repent of not celebrating our single sisters and brothers around us, not helping them feel that they are truly part of the body, truly part of the family of God, and not only helping them 
celebrate their spiritual gift, but squashing it to the detriment of the church. We have to, I think, get this right, this issue of singleness, if we're going to move forward as the family of God. Second, we need to be consistent regarding sexuality. We need to be consistent regarding sexuality. What does the Bible promote? Does God promote heterosexuality as his standard? I even hear people say, well, you know, if, if, I, if I have a friend who's you know, experiencing same-sex attractions, he's Christian, what's my goal with him as I'm mentoring, discipling him? I've heard people say, our goal is to help him pursue a heterosexual potential. Like, that's the ideal. One thing that I do when I, when I teach at Moody is I, I teach my students to think biblically and critically. I, I, don't want, I, I tell my students, don't take just my word. Go on back to the word of God. Study the word of God and, 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 and allow the Holy Spirit to teach you. Listen to what I'm saying, but, 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 but take what I say and compare that to God's word. So heterosexual potential, let's, let's think about that, if that lines up with God's word. For us to do that, we need to first define heterosexuality. Heterosexuality means being attracted to someone of the opposite sex being, or <clears throat> being sexually intimate with someone of the opposite sex. That's a pretty broad definition. So broad that I could be a man and, uh, or I am a man, I, 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 you know, hypothetically, I could be a man and I just slept with a bunch of women last year that could be still considered heterosexuality. Or I could be a married man and I'm cheating on my wife with another woman. That could also be considered heterosexuality. Or I could make, make it a little bit more socially moral. And I could be a man in a monogamous relationship with my girlfriend. We're not married. We've never been with anyone else. We've lived together for many, many years. We've actually even have a few children together, but we're not married, but we're committed to one another. That could also be considered heterosexuality. Those three scenarios that I gave you, and I could give you more, are all sinful in God's eyes. God would not use a category that would be so inclusive of sin. And I know you might be thinking, well, marriage is part of that broad category of heterosexuality, but note that everything outside of marriage under the broad category of heterosexuality is sinful. So it's not heterosexuality, it's not homosexuality, then what is it? It's holy sexuality. What is holy sexuality? When I read through the full counsel of God, you know there are only two paths for us to be on as Christians to live out our sexuality. First, if you're single, complete faithfulness through abstinence, chastity. Second, if you're not single and you are married, complete faithfulness to your spouse of the opposite sex. Only two options, chastity and singleness, faithfulness in marriage. And there was no term to include those two paths. So I created a term and I call it holy sexuality. And I did that to try to abolish the heterosexual, homosexual paradigm. It's the wrong paradigm. As Christians, we should not think in those terms. That's the wrong framework. Let's just get rid of that framework and use the biblical framework, which is holy and not. Holy sexuality and not. 
the only two ways that we can live as Christians when it comes to sexuality is if you're single, chastity. If you're married, faithfulness. Only two options. And what I like about that is this applies to everyone, everyone in this room, everyone that ever lived. We all need to pursue holiness. And you might think, well, that's fine and dandy, but people who have same-sex attractions then only have one option, to be single for the rest of their life. Not necessarily so. <clears throat> so I have a friend who helps illustrate this point. He lived as a gay man for many years, like myself, comes to Christ. When he came to Christ, um, he, he realized that he had no interest in girls in the past, and he didn't have any uh, interest in girls at that point either. So he felt God was just going to call him to a life of singleness, and he was actually really okay with that. He uh, developed a close group of friends that became like his family. There was one uh, young lady that he became really close with. She was also a new Christian, and she came from a broken past. Nothing to do with homosexuality, although she was sexually active with many of her boyfriends, and unfortunately, many of those relationships ended up being very toxic. So she knew, and she kind of committed to herself and to God, that she wasn't going to date for a while because she really wanted to focus on or in, under relationship with God. So the two of them became best buddies. They felt safe together. There wasn't that weirdness that happens often between a guy and a girl and when they're friends, you know, does he like me? Does she like me? Because he knew she didn't really want to date for a while and she knew that he didn't like girls. So they've really felt safe together. You know, it's really cool. They shared everything, you know, their thoughts and you know, it's just a great kind of a platonic relationship. Well, over some time of being best buddies, he began noticing some things about her that he never noticed before, like her hair. She smelled good, and she had curves. <laughs> yeah. He says puberty is hard going through once, try going through puberty twice. <laughs> <laughs> he got up enough courage, asked her out on a date. After some dating, he asked her to, mar to marry him. And on their wedding night, he told his new bride, he's like, honey, I've, I can't explain this. I am not attracted to any other women. I'm only attracted to you. That is holy sexuality. When God brings two people together into that miracle of one union flesh, he, if it's God's will, he will provide all those two people need to fulfill that covenant relationship. That is holy sexuality. Chastity in singleness, faithfulness in marriage. Third, we need to be consistent regarding change. What in the world was, does change look like? Does change mean going from gay to straight? Does change mean, or does change mean no longer having those attractions or temptations anymore? Because I know some people who say, well, you haven't been fully changed because you still have those attractions. Do we apply that principle to anything else? Say I have a friend who was a drunk, comes to Christ, stops drinking by the power of the Holy Spirit. But after years of sobriety, he admits he still has urges to drink, but he doesn't. Would we tell him you haven't been changed? And would we tell him, we need to gather around you, lay some hands out you, you need some deliverance. I hope not. Because actually, I think that the manifestation of God's grace is more evident in his life because he says no to his flesh and says yes to God. So change is not the absence of temptations. Jesus, 
doesn't promise you, come to me, you'll never be tempted with sin again. No. Change is not the absence of temptations, but change is the ability, the freedom to be holy, not on my own strength, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, to be holy even in the midst of temptations. We need to realize that God's faithfulness is not proven by taking us away out of the struggle that we're in. God's faithfulness is not shown by taking away our temptations. God's faithfulness is shown by carrying us through it. That's how God works. And these points here, you know, are, are getting at, you know, the sexuality and the change because we have had this distorted view of the goal when it comes to people wrestling through issues of sexuality. Because we, I think, have viewed this and, and given this the wrong diagnosis. I think for um, you know, the past several decades, we have not diagnosed this correctly. You know, um, when you get sick, you go to your doctor, and what do you want your doctor to do? He can't automatically heal you, and most times, what he can do is give you medication or whatever. But for him to give you medication, he needs to do something first, which is probably the most important thing. And he needs to diagnose you correctly. If a doctor gives you an incorrect diagnosis, the treatment will most likely be incorrect as well. You need a correct diagnosis to come up with a correct treatment. But I think we have not diagnosed this correctly. We have diagnosed this uh, as a sickness. You may think, how does that be? Oh, we've diagnosed this as a disorder. What we've done in the past, why, you, know, you might think, how have we done that? I think many of you have probably heard something like this, that homosexuality is primarily due to absentee father, dominant mother, or abuse in one's childhood. Have you guys heard something like that in the past? We view this, that that's the cause for homosexuality, absentee father, dominant mother, or abuse in one's childhood, that somehow that's the main causative factors for homosexuality. The problem with that is it views that who we are today and our struggles and our temptations and our problems is due to how we're raised. Let me tell you, that's Freud, not Christian. You are not a sum total of your past. That's not, that's not, that's humanist, not Christian. Why do we struggle today with sin? Let me tell you, you're a sinner. It's not rocket science. I mean, it really isn't. The Bible is just so clear. I mean, you don't even have to get through three chapters and bam, the fall, Adam and Eve took that forbidden fruit, even though they were told not to, and they ate of it, and they were deceived by Satan. I mean, and the sin just goes on from there. It didn't like just, you know, and they repented. I mean, it was like, you know, right away, you know, God was like, what did you do? What did Adam say? It's that, wooden, it's that woman you gave me. You know, he's like pushing the blame, you know, typical male. And, and you know, so it's, it's from there. We, we find that sin, we are wrestling with sin and our sin nature. I take the Bible seriously. And when I read the Bible, the Bible says that this is sin. And if that's what it is, you know what's the problem? Our sin nature. 
And if we realize that that's the problem, we can't blame it upon parents. And some of you might be a parent of a gay child or a lesbian daughter. And can I tell you, it's not your fault. Perfect parenting does not guarantee perfect children. Just, I mean, how many of you guys know of, of people who, you know, have these wonderful children and you look at them as parents are like, what in the world did they do? I mean, they were like, you know, wacky parents and yet they ended up with like really great godly kids. So just as parents cannot take the glory when their children do well, guess what? Parents cannot take all the blame when their children don't. Parents don't have that much power and control. Are you, as parent, to do all you can to mold and shape your child? Yes. But you know the job of a Christian parent is not to produce godly children. The job of a Christian parent is to be a godly parent. That's a big difference. Take the burden off your shoulder. Your job is not to create and, and to you know, make your children in, to be godly. You, have, you don't have that much control, but you know what you have control of? Be godly yourself. That's a different. Be the example. So we have to stop blaming parents on anything, not just on this issue of sexuality, because what I see in the church is often this unsaid thing. You know, these parents who they have, you know, and not, not just homosexuality, whatever it is, drugs or whatever, and they bear this guilt of, man, what did I do? Well, you know, I should have gone to all their soccer games, like as if that would have, you know, called, solved the problem. You know, I should have hugged my child more. You know, no. I mean, yes, parents, you could have been a better parent. All of us could have, but that doesn't guarantee anything. You could have done a lot of things differently, but that couldn't have guaranteed anything. Your child must, on their own, choose God or not. So this comes down to, I mean, that's why I put all this on here. We need to realize that the focus has to be upon this as a sin nature issue, not upon orientation change or behavior change. We need to be convicted of our own sin, consistent in three ways, and then third, we need to be compassionate. I've been teaching at Moody for over eight years, and every year I get students that confide with me that they're wrestling with their sexual identity. They say, I think I'm gay, and they continue to say things like, I've never told anyone. I mean, these are kids that are 18, 19, 21, 22 years old, and they come in my office and they say, I've never told anyone. That breaks my heart. They're raised in the church. They couldn't tell their parents. They couldn't tell their pastors, whatever it is. They feel that they couldn't share this with anyone. They often continue, and because of that isolation, they say they suffer with depression and thoughts of suicide. That should break our hearts. No one should have to suffer alone in the body of Christ. So how can we? You know, we talk about public schools being, you know, they say, you know, we're a safe place. No, you know, the safest place in the world should be the body of Christ. So are we safe? How can we do that? Well, first, we need to expect that this is present here in the body of Christ, in our small groups, in our homes, in our pews, whatever it is. Not be surprised. I mean, I even get, you know, surprised people that come to me and tell me things like, you know, my best friend, we grew up in church together, just shared with me that they're struggling with same-sex attractions. And they say things like, I'm so surprised. I don't know how that happened. They had great parents, raised in a Christian home. They were even homeschooled. <laughs> 
And I want to say, hold up. What it seems like you're telling me is that if someone has Christian parents, raised in a good home, they're in even homeschooled, they, and they were even homeschooled, that somehow they're exempt from struggling with sin. Is that true? I mean, is that, you know, newsflash. I'm sensing in this room right now that there's maybe one or two people here in this room that are struggling with sin. I'm not going to point you out. I don't want to embarrass you. You know, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. I'm, I'm sensing at least maybe one or two. All right, let's be real. All of us struggle with sin, right? I mean, you know, that, what's the body of Christ? Are we a group of people who've got it all together, don't have any problems? We meet once a week, hold hands, and we sing kumbaya. Is that what we are? Or is the body of Christ a group of people who know we are broken and we desperately need Jesus? Can I just be honest with you? I am broken and I need Jesus. Anyone else out there that relates to that at all in any way? So let us all hand in hand walk together to him. Not because I can fix you. I can't. Not because I have all the answers. I don't. But I know someone who does. And his name is Jesus. So we just need to realize we're all in this boat together. Yes, does my struggle look a little bit different from yours? Yes. I mean, when, you know, if we focus so much on those similarities, I mean, that's why we isolate ourselves. Well, you'll never understand my sin. You know, well, you can't ever minister to me because you don't have same-sex attractions. Well, I mean, I don't need to shoot up with IV drugs to be able to minister to a drug addict. Right? I mean, is that true? Just like you don't need to be in an adulterous relationship to help an adulterer. Right? I mean, so why in the world then do we come up with this crazy idea that just because you don't experience same-sex attractions, you can't help another person who might struggle in that way. If you love Jesus, and if you are in the daily battle with battling with your flesh, you can help another Christian. Amen? So we need to just have that compassion, expect that this is present here, not be surprised, not be surprised and then we need to know your position. Be able to articulate what you believe. This is so important in this day and age because everyone's asking us what you believe. But oftentimes, you know, what is distilled, when I hear other people, you know, kind of what, when they try to explain themselves, it's kind of distilled to this. It's bad, don't do it. We have to dig deeper than that. You know, that can't be our position. That's not like a, a really encouraging position. I mean, why would anyone want that? If there's going to be like the takeaway that I want people to remember, it's this. My hope is to lead people into a deeper relationship with Jesus. You know, I don't talk about, I want people to know Jesus. Demons know Jesus, right? It's making no difference. I want people to have a deeper relationship with Jesus, a daily deeper relationship with Jesus. For what reason? So that they are willing and able to surrender to him. You know when Jesus was with the apostles, pulled them aside, and he spoke to them plainly. He told them, if anyone would come after me, he must, not an option, must deny himself, pick up his cross daily, it says in the Gospel of Luke. Pick up his cross daily and follow me. You know what we want to do as Christians? We want to skip over those first two things. We want to follow Jesus. We don't want to, f we don't want to deny ourselves. We don't want to pick up our cross. And you know that part about picking up, picking up our cross? 
I think we have all misunderstood that. Because you know what we've taken that to be? Picking up a cross, picking up our burden, picking up a hardship. You know, I hear people who talk about their employer who's really, really hard, and they say, well, I guess I just need to pick up my cross daily. Or people will you know, talk about their child, their prodigal, I just need to pick up my cross. Or they'll even talk about their own sin struggle, I need to daily pick up my cross. Picking up your cross is not bearing a burden. Every time that the cross is mentioned in the New Testament and in, in the Greco-Roman, I mean, in all the literature in the first few centuries, the cross, you know what that meant? Not a burden. It meant death. It's not saying, oh, I'm just going to, you know, just go through life and just bear, you know, carry this burden. It means that I'm going to death daily. And this is not a message for really super-duper Christians or pastors. This is a message for every Christian. If you want to follow Jesus and truly follow him, deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow him. Following Jesus should cost us everything. If it hasn't, maybe you're following the wrong Jesus. When you give up everything, and I mean everything, and then God allows you to keep some things, you know those things are no longer yours. They're all his. Following Jesus should cost you everything. If it hasn't, maybe you're following the wrong Jesus. It's about full surrender. Third, maybe you have a friend who you've wondered whether they're wrestling through these issues of sexuality and you've always wanted to kind of just walk with them, him or her. So maybe you're thinking right now, you know, how can I bring it up to them? How can I ask them? Don't. Just, just letting you know. Not a good idea. You know, just imagine if someone came up to you out of the blue, one of your good friends, and asked, do you have same-sex attractions? Awkward. Okay, I'll just let you know off the board. That's awkward. But what you can do is give assurance of your friendship. Tell them, I thank God he put you in my life. And I just want you to know, anything you say or do won't change our friendship. That creates a safe place and invites them in. We should be doing that with all of our close friends. Creating that safe, redemptive, compassionate space. Fourth, let us be a body of Christ who takes seriously in fighting against bullying and the gay jokes. I think that among Christians, we justify gay jokes. We might not bully anymore. I mean, we're not in junior high, but I think our kids probably might. Kids can be cruel, right? I mean, they're sinners. They can be cruel. And we need to realize that we need to be proactive in helping our kids. Not, you might think, well, no, my kids, you know, they don't bully. They're the ones that's being bullied. But let me just tell you, give, give you a little bit of insight. When I grew up, I mean, I was always the smallest, shortest kid in the, in the class. And they made fun of me. I had four eyes. You know, I had this bowl haircut, which is cute when I was four, not when I was in fourth grade. So I was made fun of all that. They call me all these names, Chinese, Japanese, Korean. They didn't know what I was. But on top of all that, they call me gay, fag, sissy. My teachers would tell me, sticks and stones will break your bones, but words will never hurt you. What a lie. Please don't perpetuate that lie with our youth and our children. Words have power. 
power. Words can break the soul of a child. Our words should build up, never tear down. And so can we help our youth to be proactive? And, and though I, I talk about how I was bullied and treated bad, and I'm not proudful, I'm, I, I'm, I'm ashamed of this, but once I got a little bit older in junior high and somehow, you know, through kind of change of events, I kind of sort of got in the in crowd. Unfortunately, you know what I did? I turned upon some of my own friends and I bullied them. So don't think that though your kids might be bullied now that they're, not, they're immune to being the bully. We need to make sure that we instill in our youth bullying is never making fun of no one is ever saying names even even saying things like even saying things like that's so gay i mean you never know i mean you know using your hand and you know lisping or whatever that is making fun of homosexuality you never know when when someone might hear that and their son or daughter just came out to them and what they just think is well i'm definitely not going to share that here so instead of saying that's so gay can we expand our vocabulary a little bit? You know, ex- you know, learn some new words to help our youth to kind of be more creative. How about instead of that's okay, how about that's so Presbyterian or that's so Baptist, you know, whatever it is, that's so Foursquare, whatever. That's so Gettysburg, I don't know, that's so PA or Central PA, I don't know if that can be a thing. So, so I, I think we need to realize, you know, compassion is so important. We need to be convicted, consistent, compassion, and then fourth, we need to be complete. Complete is in what we say, what we communicate. And this builds to, because what you communicate is the relationship that you have with people. We focus upon God's truth. Why? Because it's the truth that sets us free. So the question then is, what is the truth when it comes to homosexuality? People, Christians, will often say, that's easy. It's a sin. That is true. But unfortunately, you know what most people do? They say nothing more after that. They put a period, a full stop after that sentence, and they say nothing more. And do you know that's equivalent to giving someone a one spiritual law tract? You guys heard of the four spiritual laws? Well, this is the one spiritual law that goes something like this. You're a sinner, and you're going to hell. Sorry. In case you didn't know, that's not good news. I mean, there's nothing good about that. I mean, nothing. I mean, I look and look, there's nothing good about that. But, you know, that's the message we've been giving to the gay community. You're a sinner. You're going to hell. There's no hope for you. It's no wonder why the gay community want nothing to do with us, because they have not been, they have not been given or received the good news from us. We have been giving them the bad news only. We have not been telling them the complete truth. We have been telling them an incomplete truth. And do you know telling someone an incomplete truth can be just as harmful as telling someone a lie? So what is the complete truth? In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? After that, he lists 10 sins. And in this list of 10 sins are two words in the Greek that focus upon homosexual behavior. And... Oftentimes, people will look at this verse, look at this list of 10 sins, and focus on those two words and say, look, gays and lesbians won't inherit the kingdom of God. You know when they do that? They conveniently forget about the eight other sins. Because if we look at all 10 sins, 
none of us, none of us should inherit the kingdom of God. That's bad news. But I praise the Lord that Paul didn't stop there. He didn't end his sentence and say nothing more. He goes on to say in one of my favorite verses, verse 11, he says in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11, such were. Did you catch that? Were. Past tense, some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. That, my friends, is not good news. That's amazing news. That is news that we can declare from the rooftop to anyone that needs to know about Jesus Christ. That's good news. And we need to proclaim that. Our message must be redemptive. It has to focus upon the hope that we have in Christ, that Christ came, and if you believe in him, you can have new life. You can be washed. You can be justified. You can be sanctified. That's awesome news. Our message must be redemptive. We cannot just focus upon the law. That's legalism. We need to focus upon the gospel. That's what we first started. Remember the foundation of the gospel? That's the gospel. That's good news. Such were some of you. You were an adulterer. You were a liar, a cheater. You were a drug addict. You were whatever. Fill in the blank. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. That's awesome news. People in the gay community, their main problem is not their sexuality. Their main problem is to fully surrender to Jesus, is to know and surrender to Jesus. You know, my biggest sin was not same-sex relationships. My biggest sin was unbelief. We need to make sure that we recognize what is the true problem and what is the true answer. So at the end here, before we go into the Q&A, I want to give some uh, practical things here. But we need to be clear not to conflate everyone into one group. In other words, we need to realize those who know Christ and those who don't. And differentiate, not just people who say they know Christ, but truly they are born again, they hold to biblical sexuality, and yet they struggle with same-sex attractions. How do we minister to them? That's mentoring kind of discipleship, not outreach. Whereas this group, people who are in the gay community, many of them who don't know Christ, or even some who say they know Christ, but they're holding to a false gospel. Some of you might have friends who say, I'm gay and I'm Christian, and God is blessing that. And you say, what do we do with that? First of all, we need to realize that not everyone who says they're Christian is truly a Christian, right? I mean, uh, people say, Lord, Lord. And, and Jesus says, I don't know you. I mean, so that's, it's not uncommon. It's a wide road, and we have to follow the narrow path. But we also need to realize that many, the, the, I think the issue for the, the people who hold to Uh, an unbiblical view of sexuality is not even their view of sexuality. It comes down to their view of the gospel. Because when the gospel becomes the social gospel, when this gospel becomes, you know, what we do to, you know, keep taking care of people's problems here on this earth, 
we miss out on what the true gospel is, and that is reconciliation, not between ourselves, but first of all, reconciliation between sinful man and a holy God. That's the true gospel. And so this is a gospel issue at stake. So when people say, I'm gay and I'm, and I'm Christian, they're not holding to the true gospel, and we need to preach to them the true gospel, not the social gospel. Jesus was not primarily a social gospel advocate. He was about the, uh, advocating between us and a holy God. So uh, we need to make sure we're differentiating between two groups. But I'm going to first focus upon the first group, and that's Christians who might experience same-sex attraction. Say after this weekend, you actually have a good Christian friend that confides with you that they're wrestling with these issues of sexual identity. They have same-sex attractions. Do you know how to respond? First of all, thank them that they trusted you. It's, it's not easy to open up with another Christian that they're struggling, you know, that you're struggling with their sexuality. Tell them, second, that they're not alone. A lot of times... Christians feel that they have to go through life all alone. They think, no one will ever understand me. And you, you know what? Be honest. Tell them, you know, I don't know everything there is to know about sexuality, but tell them that you want to learn. People who are in need, what they need most are not experts. What they need most are friends. And you can be a friend. Third, Help remind them that their identity needs to be in Christ. Probably this last part, section of these practical things, that may be the most important thing. Why? This is, the only, this is the, one, of the, one of the few sins, maybe the only sin that I know, that has confused sin with identity, experience with who we are. I don't know anyone that says, you know, when it comes to adultery, that that's who they are, that that's the way they're born. They see that as something that they do. I don't see, you know, people who's an addict, that, you know, that that's, that that's, that's part of who they are. That's what they do. This is the one issue where they have conflated, where sexuality is what they feel and what they do, and they have put that over into the category of personhood. So no longer do people say, this is what I feel, this is what I do. No, in the gay, gay community, they don't say that. When I lived as a gay man, I didn't say that. I didn't say, this is what I did. I said, this is who I am. This shift from what to who has created a radically distorted view of personhood. You are not your sexuality. You are not gay. You are not straight. You are not bi. That's what you experience but your experience is not who you are. This is such a core, I mean, it takes a lot for me to kind of break the paradigm because it's been ingrained in us for decades. This is who a person is. That's why it's so, such a part, it's so personal to people because they, they see this as who they are. I think we need to resist and tell people sexuality is not who we are. This concept of sexual orientation, I think, we, I think is not the wrong category. Sexual orientation so much is in, you know, enmeshed with who a person is. It's what we experience. I don't know any other feeling or attraction or desire that has now become who we are. None. Sexuality, yes, they're strong desires. They, they, they can be, uh, you know, oftentimes, not always, but sometimes very fixed 
But still, that should never be who we are. Christians, we know our identity is not our sexuality. Our main identity should not even be in our race, our gender. Our main identity needs to be in Jesus Christ. That is what guides us. Because whatever you put your main identity in, that's going to be what guides you in life. Our main identity needs to be in Christ. Fourth, be realistic. Don't give these false promises that it's so easy when you come to Jesus, you have no problems. I often tell people, actually, it's harder coming to Jesus. When I wasn't a Christian, I did whatever I wanted. I had an itch, I scratched it. I had a desire, I did it. Now I have a heavenly father that I want to please, and I have an enemy nipping at my heels. You know the difference? I have hope that's not dependent upon my circumstances. That's the difference. I have the hope that's not of this world. Though Satan might throw his darts, though I go through the valley of death, though I go through the storms, I still have hope. That's the difference. I didn't have that before. Fifth, don't focus so much on the externals. You know, this is the way people dress or the way they act, you know, you know like as if, you know, a, a, a lady that was, you know, had a lesbian partner and stuff, or you know, struggled with same-sex attractions. You know, you know, as if the answer is to help her to walk in heels. I, I actually know people who do that. What does walking in heels have with have to do with anything about loving Jesus, right? You know, or 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 they'll help like you know a guy to like you know, change a flat tire or, you know, throw a ball. What, what does that have to do with loving Jesus? What does that have to do with being a godly man? You know? That's focused so much on the external and their appearances where we need to focus upon the heart. I look at King David. He was the most sensitive man in the Bible. He wrote music. I mean, he was, he wept. I think if he lived today, he would be probably called gay fag sissy. So we need to realize, you know, that, that don't focus so much on the externals. Let God do the work. I want to see change from the inside out, not from the outside in. The gospel doesn't work from the outside in. It works from the inside out. Sixth, encourage God-honoring same-sex friendships. Next to my relationship with God, next to putting my identity in God, this is probably the second most important thing. We need to really promote healthy, godly, same-sex relationships and friendships. What I needed to do was to relearn how to love men. Let me say that again, because that might sound weird. I needed to relearn to love men correctly, the way God intended, not in sexual ways, not in romantic ways, but in God-honoring, non-romantic, non-sexual, non-codependent ways. And yet that's not really encouraged in our culture today. Men, you can't be too close to one another because then people will think you're gay, right? No, look at the, some of the healthiest relationships between men in the Bible. They were intimate. They weren't sexual, they weren't romantic, but they were intimate, strong, loving relationships between men. At the core, homosexuality, it's desire for intimacy with the same sex. So really, that's a legitimate need. It's only fulfilled in an illegitimate way. Actually, I think many sins are legitimate needs fulfilled in illegitimate ways. So how do we minister to those in the gay community? 
Well, first of all, let me tell you what you should not do. Is that a good place to start? Do not compare this to an addiction, pedophilia, murder. Not a good way to win people to Christ, just letting you know. Second, don't use the two words lifestyle or choice. That often is offensive to our friends in the gay community. I never used those words when I lived as a gay man. Why? Because I had the wrong identity. See how so much stems from the wrong identity? And you know, when, the reason why I think identity is a better place to start with a gay friend is because that's not argumentative. You know, a, a simple ask like, you know, tell me more about yourself. That's identity. That's, you know, you, you're not talking about morality. Morality is when you're going to start arguing with people. Because how can you understand morality when you don't have the correct identity? See, we're, we're kind of getting to the second point before we address the first point. Talk about that first. Uh, third, don't say love the sin or hate the sin. You know, when, when that you tell your friend, I love you, I just hate your sin. They don't feel loved. I'm just going to let you know. They don't feel loved when you say that. Do it. Don't say it. And um, live that out, but don't tell other people because they don't understand that concept. They can't separate who they are with what they do. Fourth, don't feel the need that you have to debate with people all the time. There is a time for truth. And I think we must speak truth, but we need to know when is the right time to do so. If you do it too early, all you can do is just get into an argument and you just kind of further that, that chasm between you and this person that needs to know about Jesus. So what should you do? First, pray. Pray and fast. You guys know the movie The War Room? Well, The War Room, that movie, was novelized into a book and that book was dedicated to my mother. Are you doing battle for those around you? Pray and fast. I think we've lost the spiritual discipline of fasting. Fast and pray for those around us. Second, listen. We need to be quick to listen and not quick to speak. If you want others to listen to you, you must first listen to them. Third, be intentional. Don't be afraid to invite your gay neighbor over for dinner. Take them out to coffee. And you know, the majority of times, you know how Christians respond when I say that? Well, would I be condoning their sin if I invite a gay person over for dinner? Well, let me give you a little bit of insight here. Last time I checked, we usually have sinners over for dinner. Nothing new. You're just eating with them. You're not sinning with them. That would be a different story. You're just eating with them. Fourth, be patient and persistent. It's going to take time for people to turn around and come to know Christ. For me to turn around in eight years is actually a short time. I know people who've been praying for decades. If God was in it the long haul for you, should you not also be patient and persistent for others? Lastly, be transparent. It's so hard sharing the gospel with people who have a hardened heart. They're stiff-necked. They want nothing to do with the gospel nothing to do with Jesus, nothing to do with God. You, you say anything about, you know, God, you, you open up the Bible and they start running. You know, you pull out a tract, whatever. They, they, they're, they're just going to build up a wall. But you know what you can do is simply talk about what God is doing in your life lately. They can't argue with that. What has God done in your life? What is God teaching you this week? Talk about it. 
Talk about how God has changed you. If you call Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you should not be the same as you were 10 years ago, 10 months ago, or even 10 weeks ago. God should be continually transforming us. Share about that. Be transparent. I would never have considered the gospel if I didn't see the gospel lived out in my parents' lives. I would not have picked up the Bible from the trash can if I didn't see the Bible lived out in my father's life and my mother's life. I didn't leave pursuing same-sex relationships because someone convinced me they were immoral. No. I didn't leave it because someone convinced me they were unhealthy. I left it because I was shown something better. And his name is Jesus. Our job as followers of Christ is to show a dying world out there that no matter what they're clinging to, all the fool's goal in the world, job, career, money, or even good things like family, spouse, children, no matter what they're clinging to and they feel like they just can't let go of, we need to communicate to them and show to them that not only is Jesus better, but Jesus is best. So let us, as the body of Christ, as the family of God, live our lives in a way that it is unmistakable that not only is Jesus better, but Jesus is best. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for life. We thank you for Jesus, who is the propitiation for our sins, who through him we are made righteous. Righteous, God, help us to seize the day. Give us opportunities to be able to pour into the lives of others, whether they are in the church wrestling with sexual identity, wrestling with uh, same-sex attractions, or they are friends in the community who, know, who don't know Christ in the gay community, but they need to know Christ, or those of our friends who are gay Christians and they hold to this false gospel. Lord, help us to be able to live the gospel well before we preach the gospel to them. God, we love you, we praise you, and we ask in mighty and matchless name of Jesus, the people of God said, amen. This has been so good. Um, and uh, I want to encourage you. I know some of you may need to go, and that's okay. We're not going to go too much longer. But my, my favorite in every class and any group I'm in is always Q&A because you learn so much from each other and each other's questions. So we're going to do this just for a few minutes. And, um, and even if you can stay a little bit longer and you've got to go before we're done with the Q&A, go ahead. But I'd encourage you to stick around at least for a couple minutes here as we, we hit a couple questions. By the way, as we were talking about all this tonight, I was homeschooled, and so I... <laughs> I uh, I need I need help for my sin from being homeschooled. <laughs> <laughs> You're recovering. Um, <laughs> um, but this is uh, I mean, I'm going to just take a second. But what he said tonight, I just want to reiterate it. This is part of this is near and dear to me because I remember being a youth pastor about 17 years ago, and uh, a girl who was a lesbian got to our youth group, and God changed her life radically. She became really close to Jerry and I, and she started bringing a lot of her friends. And so our youth group was kind of filled with people with all the spectrum of sexuality. I'll never forget one Wednesday night saying to someone, oh, that's so gay. And looking around at all these people, still hurts me today. Looking around at all these people that God brought to our youth group. <laughs> and God did something in my heart that night. And I thought, I'm, ne I'm never, ever going to do that again. 
um, as I looked and just thought, I'm, I just lost such credibility and witness to these people that God had entrusted to my care. And um, don't forget that. Um, um, I, I pray that I never make that mistake again um, towards any particular sin or, or, or any proclivity that any of us have. But I'm going to give you a real practical question. Okay. I'll give you one maybe outside of practical. But I get this one a lot. Yeah. And I've answered this. So I'm wondering if I should change my answer. <laughs> <laughs> um, but something I get a lot as a pastor is my, my son, my daughter, my niece, my nephew, mm-hmm. my family member, friend mm-hmm. is getting married. Yeah. Um, should I attend the wedding? And it's that whole thing you just said a moment ago, am I condoning them? Yeah. And um, this, one's, this one's to me, is a, is a real, it's a very good and real question because um, some of them are asking, really, from a standpoint of, um, I, I don't want to you know, give the wrong impression because of my faith, but I do want to support this person. Yeah. Uh, how, how do you answer that? Just do whatever Pastor Mark says. Oh, um, gosh. So. <laughs> Please give us more. <laughs> Well, not having heard what you said, um, actually, I don't really give an answer. Um, I, I think this is, um, it's, it's a huge, how we respond will have enormous implications. Mm-hmm. Marriage is so important to this person. I mean, they invited you um, for a reason, because they just, you know, I mean, when we invite people to weddings, it's not just anyone that you invite to weddings. So they view you as a person that they love and trust and, and is a dear friend. Um, so going, not going, this is a big, big decision that we should not take lightly. Um, so I, I often tell people we need to start with praying and fasting. I, 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 I just, I can't, I, you know, I want to make sure that I put that in that we have to fast, not just pray, because I mean, you know, we we should be praying about everything. But this is one of those things that, because of uh, the elevated importance of this, I think that's something that we should fast. And if this is something that, um, if you're married, I would say fast together with your spouse about it to to seek uh, God that He would give you wisdom on it. On this, how we respond, and and also broader to our relationship with this your your gay friend or loved one, there's two important things that that are at stake. Um, one, do they know what we believe? Um, have we lived it out well? Have we articulated that well? Are they guessing? Um, I mean, hopefully they know. And, and I'm not even just talking about sexuality. I'm talking about, do they know we believe in a triune God who's Father, Son, Holy Spirit? Do they you know, know, that, you know what the gospel is and that we hold to that? Do they know that we have a high view of Scripture? And because of all that, we are led to you know, God's calling for biblical sexuality. So it's not just, do they know this is sin? But do they have a broader view, a foundation of kind of why we believe what we believe? But second, do they know that we still love them? So obviously, on this question and how we, we respond, uh, these two are in tension because if you do not go, boy, it's really clear what you believe, but it's unclear you love them. If you do go, it's clear you love them, but it might be understood what you believe. So how you respond, this can cause tension between these two important points that we want the other, uh, our loved one, our gay loved one, to know. Um, 
if you pray and fast and you believe God is telling you that you cannot go, you know, according to your convictions and your relationship with them, whatever it is, um, I urge you, don't communicate this through an email, through a phone call, through text. I think this is something that needs to be done face to face. And that might even mean you f- go the extra mile and fly to them over the weekend and spend some time with them for a week and communicate that to them, that, that you are really torn about this, you love them, but because of your convictions, you are just not able to go. Uh, and so you know, that would be a, a, a tough dis- uh, discussion, but I do believe that should be do- something done face to face. Now, I think a lot of the struggle with most of this is um, we, we, we assume that simply going to a marriage is automatically you're condoning it. Um, but I, I think we need to realize that n- simply going doesn't necessarily mean you are condoning. For example, um, I know many in-laws who go to weddings and, you know, they don't all, they go, but boy, are they not in, a, they're not giving that stamp of approval, uh, and yet they still go. So simply go, my point is just saying, now I'm not saying you, you should go, I'm just simply saying, simply going doesn't necessarily mean approving. Uh, but to complicate things, as Christians, we know a, a true Christian wedding or a wedding is not simply just two people coming together. It's not simply for the bride and groom. There is the congregation. There are people who are there, and as Christians, if I'm, you know, I've gone to many weddings, and I know my job is not simply just to go there, but my job is to actually be a witness and to hold accountable the man and the wife to their vows, to their covenant with one another. So there's that added layer of complexity of marriage, of, of going. Um, so I actually personally, if I were invited, um, if, it were, if it was done in a Christian setting, even if it was a liberal church, I wouldn't be able to, I, I, my conscience wouldn't be able to go to the ceremony but I know that some people who would not go to the ceremony, but maybe they would go to the reception. It's a free dinner, why not, right? So that, that could be a way, you know, you, you have to be creative in your way to see how you can show, you know, what you believe, but you still love them. And that could be maybe a creative way. You might not go to the re- ceremony, but maybe you go to the reception. And I also tell people, if that were you, if you do go to the reception, um, there would be some things that, like, I just want to make sure that my, my I, I can, st- you know, uh, say that my actions hold true to my conscience. So for, you know, there's many elements, you know, I've, I've gone to a few weddings, and so there's elements in the, in many elements in the, even the reception that are clear endorsement of the couple and, and the union of two people. For example, like toast, right? They keep toasting, you know, to the couple. I, I wouldn't be able to do that. I, you know, I wouldn't, you know, stand in defiance and, you know, I'm not going to toast. I, I would just sit out and just, you know, kind of respectfully sit out of that. that people might not notice that, which is fine. Um, but I know my conscience, I can stand before God and kind of, you know, say that. Um, going through the line, I wouldn't say congratulations. That's a clear endorsement. Maybe I would say, I love you. You know, thank you for allowing me to be a part of your life. See, we need to distinguish the difference between endorsing the union and affirming the individual. And we should in- affirm both people. Getting 
a gift. Usually you get one gift for the couple. I wouldn't get a gift for the couple. I would get individual gifts. Again, you're affirming the individual, not the couple. And, um, you know, get them something, a gift of significance, something Christian. Get them a Christian book. Get them our book. You never know. They might read it. You don't know. Um, so I think there are other options. I, I don't want to say you need to do this, you should not do that. Um, I just say you need to think it through, pray it through, fast it through, and there are options um, more than just, I'm not going, I am going, whatever, because I think we need to communicate you know, what you believe, but still communicate that you love them. Fantastic. That's really good. Um, I only part of what I would ever tell someone is that Jesus never just blanketly rejected people out of a fear of condoning their sin. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, he told Zacchaeus, I'm heading to your house today. Mm -hmm. And that was to go to someone's home to share a yeah. meal was an absolute condoning of the person. Right. It was an absolute acceptance of that person mm -hmm. in Jesus' culture. So we don't blanketly mm -hmm. reject people mm -hmm. just because we're afraid to condone sin. You know? So thank you for that answer because it is. It, it's something you have to think about and pray about um, as you go. Okay, one, one more and I'll let Nate pick one of your questions. Um, Rick Warren says that the world, especially in the United States, knows what the church is against, but rarely what we're for. Right. Um, and this issue is no different. I appreciate your articulation towards singleness. Mm -hmm. That is almost, I agree, and even as a pastor, I said ashamed of, of just how often we miss that mm. and uh, to platform um, singleness and, uh, and all that you talked about. So not to rehash that, but why? Uh, so you laid out a great picture that it's not just um, homosexual or uh, yeah, heterosexuality that is like our ultimate goal, but, but why is God for a male and a female um, in, 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 in the expression of sexual love? Mm -hmm. Instead of just like, well, we're, we're anti-homosexuals. Right. But what, why, why, why do you think God is for a male and a female? Right. That's a yeah. big one. But. It, it, and, and I mean, for, uh, this is what I'm writing about in my book right now. Um, so although um, we need to realize that marriage is not uh, our ultimate goal in life, uh, uh, Jesus did not die so that we would be married. Um, here, I mean, Jesus did die so that we would be married, that Jesus would be wed to the Lamb of God, I mean, for that, but he didn't, you know, die so that we would be married, you know, here on earth. Um, and sexual intimacy is a beautiful gift um, for wedded couples, but it's not the ultimate satisfaction of life. But it's important why the male-female um, complementarity. Um, it, a lot of times people come with all these explanations and sometimes it comes to like natural law, which is, you know, well, you look at, I mean, natural law is, um, like the Catholic Church puts lots of emphasis upon natural law. Natural law is philosophy that stems all the way back to the Greco-Roman era and uh, because back then there was, you know, Christianity was not really big and, and the Greeks and, Jew, uh, Greeks and Romans knew nothing about Jews, uh, so they kind of made up their own, you know, they had all these philosophers that were trying to come up, and natural law is just kind of like looking at, well, what's in nature, well, you see, you know, two parts, they fit together, so that's more natural and stuff, and, and I think the problem with Christians espousing that is uh, that just promotes heterosexuality as opposed to holiness. And the Bible doesn't pr promote heterosexuality because if, if you're just simply looking at what's going on in nature or simply looking at, well, these two body parts fit together, well, then why not, you know, um, 
why monogamy or why you know just committed you know marriage and why not just you know many 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 partners i mean that that's more natural uh that's what's going on in nature um so i i find i don't i don't espouse natural law but i do espouse um but even though paul does talk about nature in romans 1 so i think paul what he does was redeeming the natural law and um, what he did was he pointed in Romans 1, pointed back to Genesis. When you go through Romans 1, 18 through 32, you see Paul using a lot of words that are echoing back to Genesis. A lot of times biblical writers, they may, might not quote like a whole chunk of, of a previous you know, something back in the Old Testament, like a New Testament writer won't necessarily quote a whole, even though they often do, but sometimes they won't just quote a whole verse, but what they'll do is they'll spatter their whole paragraph with these words that are very unique to a certain, you know, verse or paragraph from the Old Testament. And that's exactly what Paul is doing in Romans 1, 18, 32. And he is using all these words that's, that's pulled right from the Old Testament, uh, from Genesis and creation. So what Paul is saying is that this natural complementarity is stemming back to Genesis 1, 2, uh, 1 and 2. And that also is exactly what Jesus was doing. Jesus was questioned by the Pharisees, talked about divorce. And uh, Jesus' response was, you know, in the beginning, the creator made the male and female, and the two shall become one flesh. Well, we know the two shall become one flesh comes from Genesis 2, 24. That's when um, God created uh, Eve uh, from Adam. And um, oftentimes, uh, most, almost all Bibles say that God took a rib from Adam. And rib is the Hebrew word selah. That word Salah, every time um, in the Old Testament, especially in the Pentateuch, the first, is never translated as rib. Actually, in the whole Old Testament, it's never translated as rib. It's always tra- it's, it's translated as side. So basically, God took a side of Adam and from that created Eve. And it's beautiful in that when, when, when we understand it that way, what God was doing was taking one and making two. And then further on at the end of chap- uh, chapter two, what he was was that the two was becoming one. So Jesus, when he's talking about marriage and, 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 and responding to divorce and why divorce is wrong, he was going back, he was defending marriage and how he did that was going back to Genesis. Genesis 2, the two become one. But he also threw in this part where it was, in the beginning the, the creator made them male and female. So where's that from? That's not from Genesis 2. He was linking two verses which, which kind of seem disconnected, but Jesus was connecting them. Two, uh, the creator made the male and female is not from Genesis 2, but it's from Genesis 1. And it's from Genesis 1, verse 27, where we get, uh, it says, um, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. In uh, male and female, he created them. Let me say that again. G- uh, God created man in his own image. In his, in, his own, in his image, he created, God created him. Male and female, he created them. So I'm, 
I've written about this in my, in my third book, and what you find is Hebrew does kind of poetry oftentimes. They'll kind of insert poetry in, in the midst of kind of narrative text. And this is basically poetry. It's three lines of poetry. The first line is, God created man in his own image. Second line is, in his image, God created him. So what he was doing is kind of flipping it around, almost the same thing. Third line is, male and female, he created them. So it's much easier if I kind of showed out, kind of written out. You can look in your own Bibles. It's actually pretty fascinating. So what you call this is parallelism. So these are basically, God is, I mean, it's basically the same thing that's going on in all three lines. First line, God created man in his own image, right? God created man, subject, verb, object, in his own image, prepositional phrase. Then second line is prepositional phrase, subject, verb, object, okay? I... I never liked grammar when I grew up, but I'm like a total grammar geek now. Like, I love sentence diagramming and all this. I mean, exegesis was all that. I totally geeked out on that. So hopefully, I'm not boring you, but to me, it's fascinating because that's the only way we communicate with one another. Words. That's the only way. And it's, I love words. Anyway, so I could go on. Hopefully, I'm not boring you. So anyway, first line, you know, subject, you know, God created man, prepositional phrase, in his own image. Second line is flipping it around, in his own image, prepositional phrase, and then he created, God created him. So it's basically the same thing, right? Then what's going on in the third line? This is, this is another way Hebrew does things. They do these parallel, and then the third kind of throws this wrench or this little twist. So the second line is, in his own image, he, God created him. Him, not specifically talking about male, him as in, as in Adam. Adam is a Hebrew word for mankind. Third line, remember, in his own image, God created him. Third line is male and female, he created them. So the only difference is, instead of in his own image, it's male and female, and then you have the him turning to them. And the reason why the him is, and them is because he, he is, the him is talking about Adam, mankind, and them is talking about the individual people. So, I mean, that's there. But what I want to focus on is here, in his own image, male and female. What the writer of Genesis, Moses, was doing is showing that male and female, the complementarity between, the distinction between sexes, male and female, is linked to the image of God. It's beautiful. I mean, it's, there's no, I mean, you cannot get around this, and, and liberal theologians will want to say, no, it's, it's not linked, but it's, you know, they want to say male and female are like the same and all this. From Genesis, it is clear as day. All you have to do is just look at it. I mean, a third grader can break down the grammar and the words and show that there's this direct parallelism between image of God and male and female. And then Jesus, in our progressive revelation from Old Testament to New Testament, was then linking, not only is the image of God linked to male and female, or male and female, I'm sorry, linked to the image of God, but then Jesus, was, as he was defending marriage, was saying the two shall become one flesh, but then he was taking from Genesis 1, which is uh, the, the, ima- the, the verse about image of God, and saying marriage is linked to the image of God as well. So there is all this beauty and complexity upon marriage linked to the image of God and male and female that is very sacred that should not be blended and confused and just, you know, mixed around, but clear distinction, but also unity and distinction.
I don't know. I hope that's a that was my little theological lesson lesson there. I get so pumped about all that, and I could go like for days on that. But anyway. we've always talked about this too. I, I believe the. I believe the implied there in the Hebrew too then is also that as the male and female come together, they then produce in their own image, yes. fully becoming this mm -hmm. full expression of God's image mm -hmm. that together then they do what God did and reproduce again in their own image. Yes. Mm -hmm. And that is a gift, not that people that are single don't have, but it's just a gift of of creation design to say, I made you like me, to yep. also do like to me. To be like creator like. be a creator mm -hmm. as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Thank you. That's... Yeah. That, Anybody have questions about grammar? Because uh, we, could, we didn't tell you to put that down on your card. So. Yeah, right. Nate, Nate, go ahead. Um, there's, uh, there's so many that I want to I want to give them all due time, but we don't have time for that. A lot of them had to do with the marriage issue, going to a wedding. Yes. But the second most common has to do with what do you do with a homosexual family, maybe even with children in the church, and yeah. maybe tied to that, um, some churches that endorse homosexual leadership. Mm. Um, yeah. So um, you know, I think. We need to realize that um, you know more and more there are uh, gay couples and they're adopting children, or lesbian couples that are having having children, you know, from surrogate uh, surrogate fathers or whatever. Um, or it's not that's not would be called surrogate. I don't know. Um, anyway, th yeah, you know what I don't know what it, that's called, but uh, so gay couples would be having children and what do we do with these families well we would love on them i mean especially the children we there we want the kids to know christ i mean there's actually there's um a story about a pastor pastor caleb keltenbach and his his mother was lesbian his father was gay i like uh they were married and they had their son caleb and then they both came out and you know, he lived with a mother, a lesbian, and the father was a gay man. And but anyway, um, he became a Christian, <laughs> and just uh, almost rejected by his parents. But over time, um, loved on his parents, and and I believe that um, I, I believe both of them are not Christian. So um, I think we we just need to you know, display the love of God to, to these couples. Now, when it comes to churches that endorse same-sex relationships, what I find is that the main issue with these churches is not their view on sexuality. That's a peripheral issue. What it comes down to almost always is their view of Scripture. I know a lot of ch churches now that have kind of shifted and they'll continue to say, I have a high view of scripture. But simply saying you have a high view of scripture doesn't guarantee you have correct theology. Having a high view of scripture doesn't mean you have a high Bible IQ. Having a high view of scripture doesn't make means that you have the correct hermeneutics. Um, the, I think the test is look at their view of the gospel. What are they doing? A, a, a truly evangelical church is one that is evangelizing. Not only doing social justice works, but we are seeing that more important than meeting people's physical needs is meeting their need to know Christ. Um, and uh, what I find oftentimes is uh, the, this overemphasis upon the social gospel over the true gospel. And, and I think as you engage your friends who belong to, you know, maybe these gay affirming churches, um, 
don't start with the sexuality aspect, but focus upon the gospel first. I think that is the core issue. Because I, I truly believe if we get the gospel right, everything else will fall into place. Let me just say, since you're asking that question, and I'm the pastor of this church, <laughs> it's an interesting um, thought. You know, that list he talks about in First Corinthians, Corinthians 6 talks about sexuality of all kinds, homosexuality, also lists greed, yeah. um, which I, I think a lot of us in America struggle with. And um, you don't kick someone out of the church because they're greedy. Right. right, just as if you don't listen carefully, you don't kick somebody out of the church because they're homosexual or any kind of other sexual issue. The difference is, and Paul talks about it, when you kick someone out of the church is when they become a false teacher because of their sin, mm. right? So you don't kick someone out of the church because they're greedy, but you kick them out if they start telling people it's okay to be greedy. Mm -hmm. Now you're now you're not at a point of leadership because you're now saying what is wrong is right, and and that you don't you're, you're not out because you're greedy. You're out because you're a false teacher of what we really believe. And the Bible talks about guarding what we know to be true. So we're gracious with anybody who sins. We're gracious with all the people who are greedy. All of you can stay. But the yeah. moment you stand up and say, it's okay to want to have what other people have. And it's okay because I always want more money. No, 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 now you're not allowed to lead a small group. Because now you're going to lead people astray from what God says, here's how you find fulfillment in your life. So just so you know, it, it wouldn't even be a matter of, is someone in church leadership, um, whether they're gay or not, it's not possible for that to happen in the sense of that sexual, that sexual identity or any of the other things on the list if someone is saying that this is okay. You, you, you all cross the line, it's our job to protect the sheep. But everyone's willing to stick around and to be a part of this because we're all sinners. But the moment that anybody from the top to the bottom starts to say what's wrong is right or right is wrong, then, then Paul says, no, you kick out the false teacher. You, you don't allow people to be confused by what is true. So mm -hmm. anyway, just wanted you to know that in our church and our denomination protects us and guards us too. And, and, um, and I would be kicked out if I, <laughs> if I broke these rules. Yeah, and it's, it's, you know, it's just, you know, Paul was talking about 1 Corinthians 5. It's, you know, the people that were in unrepentant sin. Because I have many people say, well, well, why is it wrong for, you know, my gay friend who's, you know, in a, in a relationship, why can't, you know, they be in leadership or whatever, you know, because, well, you know, so-and-so, you know, he struggles with pornography or whatever. And, but, the, but the difference is, you know, it's people who are teaching is because they're in unrepentant sin. They're not repentant. So if I have a man and he's struggling with pornography, um, and he knows it's sin, but he's giving in, but he then calls me up and he's like, I need to repent, you know, hold me accountable, let's pray about this and, you know, let's, let's you know, tighten my filter up and, and, you know, put more, you know, boundaries there. That's different than I would be ministering, you know, to another man who is saying, you know what, pornography is God's gift to the world. You know, actually, you need to, you know, look at pornography. It's so freeing. It gives me so much, you know, makes me love God more. You know, that's much different than the man who's saying, I'm sinning. I know what I'm doing is wrong. Um, you know, pray for me, help me. So that's, that's the difference. Um, maybe a slightly different one that I thought was really good because I was just, your, your comment on singleness, though, that whole bit, man, like Mark said, I was deeply convicted. I mean, it was just something, it was just, I, I've heard and I've brought up, my mom is um, uh, a widower now, and uh, she's tried to explain this to me, and I still didn't get it until some of the things you said tonight. So um, this one, I think maybe part of this is tongue-in-cheek, but it says, is there anywhere in the Bible that encourages Christians to try to set up their single Christian <laughs> sisters? And I've actually heard a teaching once, um, and it lines up to their 
part B of this, which is in Genesis that God was the first matchmaker who brought Adam, you know, or Eve to Adam. Um, so can you comment on that? And then uh, the second part of that is, should singles be focusing on dating, or is that is there a contradiction there with not being at peace with being single, if I'm understanding it? Yeah. So <clears throat> I, I think um, we need to be really careful. I mean, I, I, I've, I've, um, we often view singleness as something that needs to be fixed. That's why we say, let me fix you up with someone. Think about it. You know, just the words we use. And... Um, because they need to be fixed to the problem of singleness. You know, I, I know several Christian friends that say, I don't know why my Christian friends keep wanting, me, keep wanting to introduce me to strangers. You know, I'm sick of meeting strangers. And spending, I just want to spend time with my friends. So instead of trying to fix your friends up with, you know, strangers and people they don't know, maybe all they want to do is spend time with their good friends. Um, and not be made feel like they're sorry, or, or and and that might be difficult because you're married now. But you know, I, I think we need to, um, we, the onus lies upon couples to reach out to singles, because it's really hard for a single to reach out to a couple. It's really hard. It's it's almost not really correct, almost. For, for a single person to keep reaching out to a couple or a family. It needs to be the family that opens up their doors to singles and say, you are part of our family. I, I know even some stories of um, a single man, and um, they said one of the most powerful things that a family did was give them a house key. You're a part of the family. You know, you can come whenever you want. And, you know, that's, that means something to someone who's single, who doesn't, you know, who has to go home every day. I mean, I praise the Lord. Even though I'm single, I don't feel like I'm single because I live at home. I'm 46 years old. Yes, I still live at home. But I tell people I live the biblical way. Read the Bible, you know, the Old Testament. <laughs> you know, you don't leave home until you're married. Actually, you'd never leave home. I mean, when you're married, you just go back home and you live with, the, you know, I mean, you live with your uncles and aunts and, and fathers and mother and grandparents. I mean, I mean, you're all living together. So I'm just living the biblical way. It's only America that's like, you gotta. I even heard a pastor that was like, you know what leave and cleave means? 10 miles. What? You know, like, like once you get married, you have to be at least 10 miles away from your parents or in-laws. I'm like, where in the world does that? I mean, read the Old Testament. They lived with each other, you know. They lived in the same roof, same tent or whatever. Um, you, know, you know, a pastor who's um, in a Chinese, it's very, Asian, it's very much where the parents will, will live with their kids. <laughs> And that's very, very common. And I knew um, a couple who did that with their father. And uh, a pastor's wife talked to the younger couple, was, you know, the wife was like, you know, when do you get, ever get your privacy? And this, this wife just looked at her, she's like, privacy? Like, that's just so American. I mean, that's an, it's not Asian because we don't think about privacy. I mean, that's, you know, we're so individualistic. We have to have our privacy. I mean, you know, and that's, that's not biblical. I mean, there was no privacy in the Old Testament. I mean, it was just everyone was all family. And I think we need to come back to that. Um, but when it comes to singleness, I, I, I also think we need to, um, I, I, we need to avoid extremes, you know, not just thinking, avoid the extreme of, I need to get married to be happy. 
you know, as a single person, but also avoid the other kind of extreme that is, I'm never ever going to get married. I don't want you know, because I, I, I know some people who say, well, I'm celibate. If you've noticed, I, I didn't use the word celibacy. Um, it's got a lot of baggage, you know, people talk about celibacy and they think about, you know, molesting priests and stuff like that. And um, I, I just don't use that term, but also I don't use celibacy because it gives the impression that it's lifelong. I, I, I don't know what tomorrow may bring. I'm open to whatever God has for me. And I'm open for if God provides for me a woman for me to cherish and love and to marry. Um, I, I'm not desperately seeking that. I'm just open to what that is. So I think we need to hold our future open uh, with hand, you know, with open hands. And um, you know, so and when it comes to dating as as singles, I think we need to be um, wise um, as we go into d dating. I, I think we should not do it the the way that the world does it, which is just a messy way. I, I think. Uh, we need to just be healthy friends first. I, I think we don't know how to be friends well with people of the opposite sex. I think we need to, uh, th that's why I, I keep bringing it back to the church. The answer is the church almost for everything. Homosexuality, singleness, marriage, all these things, dating. It's the church because if we're really a healthy church and um, we can see each other and interact, we're interacting with people of the same sex, of the opposite sex, and I just, I don't see how dating in general works because this is how dating happens. Um, two people come together and they, they, they realize they kind of like, like each other and so they begin kind of spending time with each other. And so they go out to dinner together. Well, if I was getting ready for a date, what would I do? Take a shower, you know, put on cologne, wear my best clothes. When I'm at, at my date, I put on my best behavior. So you're not really getting to know who I really am. That's dangerous. But I think if we're really the body of Christ and we're truly living as family, you know, I think who we truly are does naturally come out. You know, I want to see, you know, if I had a daughter, I want her to see whether the guy who she's dating really treats women well as daughters of the king, as precious, not as meat. Uh, you know, and I, I want to see, if I want to date a girl, I want to see her as she truly is. You know, not as her made-up perfect self, um, you know, to, to then kind of seem very spiritual, whatever, but just as she truly is. You know, is she truly a woman of God, you know, who's a woman of prayer and a woman of the word? And that challenged me in my faith. Um, and I, I don't think I can see that uh, through the natural dating process. I'm not saying date. I just think we need to kind of rethink that, that I don't know if dating is always the best way. Maybe, you know... Doing things more in groups, I think, uh, can sometimes be a healthier way to truly get to know uh, the other person. Well, thinking about his voice, and this is so good, we can go forever, but let's do one, let's do one more question, Nate, and I'm sorry, we'll have to cut off at some point here, and he does have to speak, so let's, let's do one more, and you've been going for two hours strong, so thanks. I think this one deals, maybe would apply to everybody, but it'd be great to hear from your perspective, but how do you deal with daily temptations? I think... We can all identify with that. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, well, first of all, um, I need to be honest. I need to be honest with myself um, that they're there um, because I need to recognize that first. Um, and I, I, I take how Jesus responded, what is the greatest commandment to that question, and he responded twofold. 
Um, he gave the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God without the heart, soul, mind, and strength from Deuteronomy 6. And then he said, love your neighbors yourself from Leviticus 19. And um, I think that's a great framework. It's vertical and horizontal. Um, so when it comes to temptation, it's vertical and horizontal. And it has to be in that order. We often want to flip the order. We, we want to make the second uh, commandment the greatest commandment. We want to love people first, you know, with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's not what the Bible says. That's not what Jesus says. Um, so we need to make sure that we love God first because actually it's through me being able to love God. It's through me loving God first with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength that I can then truly love others and love my neighbors. Um, so how I apply that kind of vertical, horizontal uh, to temptation is I need to first know that my greatest help for fighting temptation is my daily intimacy with God. It's, it's totally correlated. Uh, the less I'm fostering my intimacy with God, the more temptations and struggles uh, there, w- there will be. Uh, so, and it's a an constant onward thing, that, uh, 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 a constant, a consistent battle of daily intimacy. You can't just say, well, I got my you know, fill for the week and I'm fine. No, you, not, you need to continue to do that because Satan is a, you know, a, a, a lion and he's seeking to destroy and to kill. So, um, and, and this means kind of the, the spiritual disciplines that, that we need to exercise, you know, through daily time in the word, through prayer and discipline. And, I, you know, I think that, has, that seems like rope people like, well, I have my devotions and it's making no difference. I think we need to kind of constantly be... Um, seeking new ways and creative ways to um, uh, stir up the fire and the flame of these spiritual disciplines. Actually, my parents and I just came across a a fairly new book that came out last year. Um, It's called Habits of Grace. It's one of the best books that I've uh, read on spiritual disciplines, written by David Mathis. He's um, the former assistant of for John Piper. Um, And I think it's one of the best books that I've read on spiritual disciplines. Um, it takes a lot of, kind of because there's l- tons of books written on spiritual disciplines, um, and a lot of them are kind of just these do's, and you know, just do this, do that, do that. Um, but it, it's, it's written well, uh, but it gets down to the core things, so I, that's been really helpful in my parents and I, just kind of in just, you know, kindling some new fire in that. Um, Vertical, then horizontal. So we can't just focus upon that, but we also need to focus upon the horizontal. In that, we need to be uh, focusing upon uh, the church and, and, and our relationships with the church. I can't battle what I do alone. We want to be lone rangers, especially men. We want to be lone rangers. We allow Satan to deceive us into thinking, you can do this on your own. No one will ever understand you. You need to do this on your own. Don't find another brother because they won't really understand or they won't really get whatever it is. You know, or they, you'll seem weak, whatever. Um, I believe one of Satan's best weapons is isolation. He wants to keep you apart from others because some t- it's, it's when we are together as a body of Christ when there can be power. But we need to make sure that that doesn't make our, our main goal because sometimes we focus so much upon you know, one another. We need to know that, that the focus upon one another, why do we meet together as a church is not so that we can be a social club, it's so that we can together focus up. So actually this horizontal is really sliding upward. 
So it's really all vertical. But this horizontal is important because that's what's tangible. I see my brother and, and he can hold me accountable. I can pick up the phone and call each other. But we need to make sure that, that our, our relationship isn't just purely like this. It's more like, like this, you know, going up. Um, and uh, so that's what, and, and that's not just your brothers and sisters in Christ, but it could be your family members. Like, you know, my parents love Jesus, and, and they're, they're my prayer. We pray together. They hold me accountable, and they're the ones that really help me with that. And, and we need to find those other family members, not just your brothers, your little brothers and sisters, but family members in the church that can help you do that on a daily basis. So men, um, I urge you, you know, if you don't have... Uh, another man who's doing life with you. You know, we just passed all these battlegrounds. Um, I've never heard in the history of mankind where battle or war was ever won by a soldier. Have you? Never. It's done by an army, a platoon, I mean a division, a regiment, a battalion. And yet, men, I think many of us, we're trying to win this war as a soldier. You can't. You can't. You got to get in the trenches with your other's bro- other brother in the Lord. If you don't have another man right now in your life, why not? Today, don't wait another day. Pick up that phone, call up your good buddy, and say, you know what? We need to dig deeper. We need to love Jesus more. We need to be men of integrity, men of prayer, men of, you know, whatever and do that we, we can't do that alone doesn't doesn't matter if you're 90 years old or 19 years old i mean you need to start that now um so i would encourage that i think it's easier for women women you guys you know have that good relationship like men we got to like say okay from this time to this time we're going to hold each other accountable you know and then we're going to you know for women you just kind of naturally do that which is good but men we're, we're just wired differently praise god um Captain America was close. He <laughs> almost won. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. That is true. Yeah. <laughs> close. Um, okay, last, last question. How do we pray for you and your ministry? Well, immediately my voice so I can get through this week. Um, but little, also immediately, I've got to finish my book. And I've got all these, you know, even when I'm talking, I was like, oh, that's a good point I need to put in my book. And then it's like, it's, <laughs> we did it's record just, this. You can you listen did? to it. You did? Good. Later. Okay, because I was like, oh, that was a good point. You know, yeah. it's funny, you know, I'm so much a verbal person where like my friend Rosaria Butterfield, she's, she's, she's a writer and that's, that's where that she finds her groove in that. She doesn't like really speaking much. And I, I'm a total verbal person, which is so funny that I'm losing my voice now, which is like the worst thing that can happen to a verbal person. Um, but pray that I just get this book done, that it's my heart, that I'm able to uh, distill all, I, have, I get, um, I don't know, you know, before OCD was, was you know, um, an ADHD and all that, I'm like so off the scale that, you know, I've, I should be on lots and lots of medication. I'm, my mind's always going in different directions, and it's just so hard to put that down on paper. Yeah. So just pray that I do that well, mm-hmm. and that I do, and I am able to express God's heart in that. But then long term, um, just pray that, you know, in the busyness of my days and um, in my speaking, um, that things don't get dry, and that at the end of each day, that I love Jesus more than life. That's my goal. Mm-hmm. You know, life is short. And God, you know, God wants us to um, not be caught up with the ways of the world and the, 
and the glitter of this earth and even ministry, right? We can get so busy with ministering and doing and then miss out on the most important thing, which is loving Jesus more than life. That's hard. So just pray that for me, that I would do that, that every day that, that it would just be more. You know, we, we, th- you can never get to a point where, oh, I've loved Jesus to the max. You can't. So just pray that that would be a reality for me. I mean, in tangible, real ways. And you, you guys heard him. I want to do that real quick. And you guys heard him, though, uh, that prayer for him, uh, just like any of us, really, but as he just said, like that prayer for him is what, is what protects him and keeps him in the midst of temptation things. And can you imagine yeah. um, when you have a platform as he does in a world that's focused on this as they are and you travel like you just got yeah. back with, from Asia, speaking every day the temptation that... Um, uh, or what the enemy would try to do to get into his heart and his mind. And so what a, what a great thing. Would you pray with me as we just pray over him? And he doesn't have to do any more talking, but uh, we'll, we'll pray for that voice and that book and, yes. uh, and just in your heart. Lord, thank you. Uh, Lord, for Christopher, for Leon, for Angela, Lord, for sharing. It may seem in a way that, you know, they've said this all over the world to millions of people, and yet, God, it's still a personal, real story about their life. And Lord, we don't, we don't take that for granted, that they just stood up here today transparently sharing, God, their, their life, the ups and the downs. And uh, Lord, we thank you for that, and we pray just strength to come into them in Jesus' name. Um, God, as, uh, as your word says in places that, that I, I prayed over Chris, uh, that he would wake up. Lord, with the, with the tongue that is ready to speak the word of God, the tongue that is ready to bring health and, and strength to the weary and, and the needy. God, continue to do that in him each and every day. And Lord, may it be that easy that as he speaks, as he has conversation, as he talks to people and, 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 and speaks in conferences, that the book just emerges. Lord, it does. It just it flows from within him. And it's not something as anything else that he can produce or make fruit. Um, but let, Lord, the fruit would just come as he is falling in love with you more every day, Jesus. Uh, And Lord, may that love for you and that passion and that zeal for you that he has and his parents have, Lord, may it protect them. Lord, may it guard them. May it make, help them make decisions of wisdom. Lord, blocks ahead, Lord, of where an intersection of destruction would even take place. God, make, they make the decision, Lord, several decisions out, Lord, to avoid anything that could cause problems or issues or, 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 or fatigue in their life. Lord, that their ministry would continue to grow and be blessed in Jesus' name. Uh, Lord God, I pray that it reaches people. Um, Lord, it touches people's hearts. Lord, it helps people come out of the darkness that have been hiding under shame and Lord, but more than anything, God, may it just continue to flow. As Jesus, you said, out of, out of our hearts, rivers of living water would flow from us. Uh, God, may, may, may Christopher and his family never feel like they are, are having to produce or fabricate water, but Lord, may they be wells, Lord, that your spirit would spring up from and it would just do it naturally, Lord. I, I pray that over them, Lord, in their busyness of their schedule. Uh, in Jesus' name we pray tonight. Amen, 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 amen. Thank you for coming out. Thank you so much for uh, being with us. Would you give him a hand one more time? And, um, hey, his, his mom and dad are in the back. Their book is still back there, and um, you can buy his other book in June. We're going to believe that. You're done. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not putting that pressure on you. Uh, and uh, and uh, anyway, thank you very, very much for coming, and uh, God bless you. If you'd like even further resources um, beyond what Christopher has, I know Nate and I have others that uh, could be beneficial for you along these topics and, and what, whatever else. So God bless you. Have a wonderful night.